As I started coming across things like the quantum biology and quantum and circadian cycles, it's just some things that got a little deep. And so I wanted to have a really basic understanding, which led me to the work of Tristan Scott. He understands electricity and some of these things that seem a little bit out there, but explains it in a way that is so easy to understand. And honestly, it may be one of the most important aspects to health. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a blue zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. All right, Tristan, uh, man, I'm, I'm tickled to be doing this. Uh, all the, you in Australia is super cool, man. I, that's uh, on my bucket list. But uh, your book, the uh, Bitcoin and Beef, was uh, the way that I actually came across you, and then uh, your podcast and everything you're doing. So, brother, if you don't care, just give a give us a little introduction to uh, who you are and kind of that passion behind what you do. Yeah, I mean, well, at this point, it's it's quite a lot, but um, kind of started with the self healing uh, health journey. Really, I had, was a college soccer player, engineering student. Had one too many concussions my last year of school. Um, didn't know I was concussed the last one and had 12 to 15 months of post-concussive syndrome. Went to the classic neurologist in the centralized healthcare system. Got no feedback that was helpful. Kind of went into a pretty dark state and then I realized that you know I needed to take control of my health. This was not something a 22 year old should be going through um, for the rest of their life. So kind of went down the self healing rabbit hole, consumed so much information around health optimization, um, lifestyle intervention. So got really into that aspect of it. Started feeling a ton better when I made some tweaks in my lifestyle. Got really into you know the diet and then as a result the food system. And then I moved out west and started buying like quarter half cows with my sister in, in Wyoming because that's where she was living and started getting really into regenerative agriculture. And simultaneously, I was passionate or I was passionate. I was starting to learn more about crypto, just being at a tech school in 2017, learned about Bitcoin. Um, and then in 2020, I uh, guess a couple of years, I was starting to feel a lot better. I was full-time engineering during the day and I was realizing I had these passions. I was kind of teeter-tottering. It was like Bitcoin and then health optimization. And then it clicked for me one day that I'm into these things for the same exact reason, right? Like when I was unhealthy due to my TBI, I, I lost all the control over my life. I was very limited on what I could do. And again, was a very active person throughout my whole life, like always doing things outdoors, sports, you know, school, just always had a packed schedule. And then that all was very, very limited. And that feeling was just terrible. So losing that was 
one of the hardest things to do, but overcoming that was very empowering. And then I realized the importance of sovereignty, the importance of personal responsibility and being in the driver's seat of your life. So that's when I made that connection. I was like, wow, I'm really passionate about kind of health optimization and Bitcoin for the same reasons. And I realized that kind of nobody was talking about this connection, like, yeah, a lot of Bitcoiners were starting to go carnivore and, and things like that. I knew some people in the health space that were into Bitcoin as well. So I decided to write a book kind of connecting uh, the food system and the monetary system and talking about why decentralization is, is really the solution to individual um, quality of lives being robbed by the centralized corporations and, and government entities and made that connection. And yeah, wrote the book Bitcoin and Beef in, in 2021, uh, released it in early 2022. And since then, it's just shocking at how things have accelerated since I wrote it. And a lot of the things I kind of maybe predicted, alluded to as being very important have only come more to the forefront since then. And as I was kind of rooted in health optimization from the beginning, since I finished up writing the second edition of my book um, last year, I've focused more on diving deep into the decentralized health is, is what I call it, really. And that's kind of, again, getting back to what actually works, right? It's not these band-aid approaches of either medications from the centralized system or oodles of supplement from the functional med medical practitioners. It's actually lifestyle habit changes that will keep you healthy for the rest of your life. But again, with that comes personal responsibility. So I'm kind of all about decentralization, started the podcast, Decentralized Radio, and it's just so rewarding, so fulfilling to talk to folks like yourself and all these industry experts that are actually putting in that proof of work to continue moving this movement forward, uh, whether that's in the Bitcoin space, whether that's the scientists doing really important research that nobody's talking about in the health space. It's, uh, it's been a fun journey and we're kind of just getting started. So really excited about it. We are just getting started and, uh, you know, coming together on uh, things like this, I think is, is paramount to getting the, the ball rolling even more, just, you know, that snowball, so to speak. I, I came from it in, uh, in in a different way, but it does all come together, right? So like my son having cancer, having the farmer's market with regenerative agriculture, being really big in the biohacking and, and just kind of that uh, whole cause and effect, right? And nothing seemed to really make sense for me, Tristan. Like the, the you know, cancer treatments um, – we're not we're not winning, right? And we haven't been winning for for a long time. And even though they try to spin it like we are, um, the food system is poisonous and killing us. The agriculture system is causing the uh, rural America to die. And so there's all these things that come together. And like you said, it's the interest. It all comes from like this same point. So for us with sowing prosperity, it's uh, hey, what's that golden thread to create it, to bring it all together, to create that prosperity. And so that's really why I'm so tickled to to be visiting with you because you have brought it, brought it together. And that book, your book, Bitcoin and Beef, is, is it just speaks, you know, to, to the soul of anybody in this space. So tell me about that uh, decentralization and what that really means to you. I think that you know, the term that I typically use is uh, localism, localization. And I think that might be the same thing. But uh, if you don't care, go into go into that. 
Yeah, I mean, decentralization, it has become like a hot word for sure. And sometimes I think it's used in the wrong context. But the way I think about it, I, I think about it in terms of like pillars of like what it actually means. And I sprinkled that in a little bit in that first um, you know, response I gave it, it encompasses personal responsibility. It encompasses putting in proof of work. Um, it encompasses not having this centralized authority being in charge of it. So it's inherently instead of like a food system, um, it's like a food web, right? It's not a top down approach. It's very single layered or, you know, very flat in terms of the structure because it's at that individual level or that local level. And, and localism um, is a huge aspect, I think, of, of decentralization and getting back to the local community, local economy. Those things are all tied into decentralization. And then what does that provide? It provides resilience. It provides security, you know, from a food perspective, from an economical perspective, and then it provides you the ability to be in control, to be in the driver's seat of that venture, that business, that aspect, whether it's money, whether it's food, whether it's your health. And because of that, it does come with increased responsibility, but ultimately you're not relying on someone else for the outcome of whatever you're putting into it. So over the past 100 years, we've continuously traded convenience for quality. And it's really a shame because now you kind of have to be a jack of all trades to be um, really sovereign and just in a high level state in all assets or aspects of your life. Like maybe 100, 50 years ago, you, you could just save money. You could just, you know, trust that a doctor is going to help you out in a healing journey. You could just go to the, you know, well, 150 years ago, you'd just be buying your food locally anyway. So it was like, it was ingrained in the system. It wasn't, you had to go out of your way. People just woke up at sunrise and worked. We didn't have to tell them, hey, you should go watch the sunrise and get morning light into your eyes because it's beneficial for your health. That's just what people did. And now that's, again, everything is completely changed. Um, society has advanced tremendously from a technological perspective and modern conveniences, although they're tremendous for things and opportunities like this, have really flipped the way we live our daily lives upside down. And as a result of that, and as a result of you know greed and a broken monetary system, we now have the profitization, the monetization of everything and squeezing the last penny out of every member of society um, to keep fueling this broken system, propping it up until it eventually collapses. But overall, yeah, decentralization and localism go hand in hand. And that's one of the biggest aspects of it that I preach. And I think it's one of the easiest ways to think about it, too. The the visualization that kind of comes to me with uh, any time I'm talking about centralization and this globalization is almost like this, there's this straw and the straw has all these little tentacle things that go out and there's just like this one person sitting there and it's just taken away from, from rural America. It's taken away from healthcare. It's just like this all, it all gets, gets taken away and it's like just withers up and dies. Uh, like for us in Arkansas, Eastern and uh, Southern Arkansas, the Delta, the ag areas, they're drying up. It is it's depressing to just even drive through there. It's all monocrop land and then boarded up once thriving communities. And, and it's just, it's terrible. And it's because it's almost just been raped and pillaged to the degree. It, it's just 
degraded. And uh, so how how do you see the financial system with with what uh, you know Bitcoiners and the crypto enthusiasts kind of say uh, in the positive way versus this fiat system that we're we're all involved in? Yeah, I mean, overall, when we went, you know, this has been, I guess, a progression uh, that's been happening since 1913, since the Federal Reserve was created and they kind of separated um, that monetary responsibility into a whole different authority that's kind of a private company, kind of a federal um, organization. It's this very strange. And if you go and read um, The Creature of Jekyll Island, it's probably the best background on that and that you know, kind of scheme that to create the Federal Reserve. But since then, you know, we've just been on this journey of inevitable uh, fiat currency. And that fully happened in 1971 by going off the gold standard. And then a subsequent decade of, you know, stagflation, raising interest rates extremely high and to bring that down. And, and then, you know, it's, the result of all these uh, irresponsible monetary decisions, which comes with government intervention, right? If things go bad, intervening uh, via the Keynesian economic school of thought is that when things go bad, you intervene to help drum up some more economic momentum when really you should let things play out. You should let companies fail that are over leveraged, that are not actually running a a prosperous business model. Um, instead, you're bailing them out and giving them a free pass, um, as well as um, allowing the Ponzi scheme of a banking system that we have when you can lend out, you know, 10x for every dollar you actually have. And if everyone went to pull out, you know, their money from the bank, we would have a, you know, a bank run immediately and all the banks would fail. So the debt, um, bubble the debt cycle that's come of that is astronomical 34 trillion dollars of debt currently 900 billion dollars to just pay the interest rate of our debt in 2023 that's bigger than all of bitcoin right bitcoin's like 650 billion dollars so it's just been this progression and as we get um you know further along to 2023 these oscillations the amplitudes have become more severe and they become tighter so these you know, large events uh, will continue to happen more often. So 2008, 2009 was obviously extremely important in that aspect because the interest rates were, were held extremely low since then. Then COVID happened right as we were kind of going to go into an economic slowdown and they decided to expand the balance sheet, the, the U.S. dollar uh, amount of money in circulation by 30, 40 percent of all U.S. dollars being created in that period. And of course, you know, what's that going to result in extreme inflation? And now we've seen them rising or raising the interest rates to try and, and holding them to try and get some credibility back. And I'm not an economics expert. I'm not an analyst for, you know, um, a hedge fund or, or a Bitcoin trading company and things like that. I've interviewed a bunch of these people as well. But to me, like fundamentally, the, the money is broken. And you see that in every other industry. You see that in agriculture, right? In 1971, Secretary of Ag, Earl Butts, like huge inflection point there. And his whole motto um, is go big or go home. And he really uh, created the the exports of U.S. crops uh, internationally and then forced all these 
farmers in the Midwest who start growing as much corn and soy as they can. He just wanted to scale it up. And this misnomer of, you know, feeding the world um, in the, the mid 20th century as well accelerated into that. And eventually it was unsustainable. It went bust. And then we have all these subsidies to rescue farmers now as a result of that. And also another consolidation event where only the people with a lot of money um, can kind of stay in the game. And that's continued to happen. And now we have, you know, plant-based foods. We just have so many processed foods. Why? Because it's scalable. You make more profits and you can market it extremely heavily. They're very shelf stable. So even though they're nutrient devoid completely and they're not real food. That's just how these companies are able to make more money. And it's all back to this short term thinking, right? All these decisions made at a political level, at a company, you know, conglomerate level, it's all very short term. How do we increase profits in the short term to keep up with this expanding money supply that's devaluing and purchasing power by the day. So it's all tied together and it's really every industry just trying to keep up um, profits and make double digit percent revenue gains year on year because they have to or else their investors are going to go elsewhere. Um, and then because of that free money from the debt, you know, you could just borrow at basically zero interest, 1%, 2% interest none of these come beyond me Oatly, like all these BS companies, they wouldn't exist if we had real interest rates. Like nobody would fund that, but because money is so free, so easy to borrow, they're able to create this nonsense, spend a hundred million on marketing and still fail. Uh, if you look at their stock prices now, which is fantastic. It shows that the consumers do have some sway on what happens. And I talk about often, I think the consumer purchasing dollar is probably the most powerful um, say that the individual has in society. It's way more influential than actually the vote you cast at the ballot box. If, if you do that, I think um, maybe locally you do have some more influence, but I'm talking like presidential um, Senate elections. I think your day-to-day -day purchasing power decisions you make is, is more influential than, than the votes you cast. How how do we utilize uh, the the future this decentralized monetary system to build out these local economies? Then how how does one get to the point that we participate? Because uh, I've I've not seen anything outside of you know dollar transactions mm -hmm. really going on. So how how do we get there, Tristan? Yeah, and that and talking about Bitcoin and, and why, you know, it's better as a form of money and just quickly, it's, you know, it's program scarcity. It has a fixed supply. You can't print more. It has this decaying issuance structure where every four years, roughly the amount that gets released in the circulation on a 10 minute daily um, basis is cut in half. Um, the next halving or happening is occurring in April of next year. So that's coming up as well. Um, and then, you know, fundamentally it's, yeah, that program scarcity, it's native to the internet. Um, it's totally peer to peer. So you don't need the centralized banking system to use it. Um, we could just interact, um, directly and it's using the network to verify these transactions via proof of work, um, by having this computational hardware, the mining component of it, which is utilizing energy to verify the network and secure the network, which is just like a brilliant way that Satoshi, uh, structured this. 
um, when he first you know came up with this idea um, almost 15 years ago now. And how, how do we get there? So it is definitely nascent. We're early. It's 15 years in. It's not used a ton for daily transactions and there's some limitations just using on-chain is very slow it takes 10 minutes to confirm that's way too slow if you're going to buy like some beef from someone at the farmer's market or a coffee and then you know they created a second layer solution it's called the lightning network and you can pay someone instantaneously and that's kind of like a second channel um, coming off the the main chain but you can't use it for like really really large um, sums of money like if you want to send someone five thousand dollars you would you wouldn't use that but again for daily transactions like uh, I sold bison at farmers markets in Wyoming and I accepted Bitcoin and although only like two people paid me and one of them was my friend um, it's it's doable like it's really just yeah. growing the circular economy aspect of it and we're still very very early like most people in the US still they might own like a tiny bit of Bitcoin but they don't really like they don't own it actually they don't hold the, the private keys it's probably just on Coinbase or Robinhood or, or somewhere um, they don't really know how it works they think of it just as like an investment that's going to go up so it's not really money in the US whereas in other countries like Argentina um, Venezuela Nigeria Turkey inflation's 50 plus percent like these people are actually utilizing Bitcoin for what it was meant to be and they're usually utilizing other cryptos mostly the stable coins uh, like US USDT or USC um, uh, stable coins but there it's actually relevant completely as money because their fiat currency is unraveling um, and here in the US we have this luxury that we have the most sound fiat currency in the world and there's a lot of theories that as we continue to debase the dollar every other fiat currency um, and you've already seen this with the pound and the Australian dollar too are going to just accelerate faster in their unraveling than the US dollar which is a shame because we're basically you know putting a lot of stress on, on other nations just by being involved with us as the global reserve currency. So for me, how do we grow this? You know, it's continuing to just preach the fundamentals of Bitcoin, continue to be open to accepting it, you know, just having a sign at a farmer's market. For me, I got hundreds of questions. Oh, you accept Bitcoin. Wow. And everything from, oh, you must be rich to, oh, that thing's going to zero to you're an idiot to, oh, that's really fascinating. Oh, I'm going to buy your book to learn more. So that was really cool. And then if you're a consumer and you value Bitcoin and you want to grow this movement, um, then you should just go up to people at farmer's markets and be like, hey, do you accept Bitcoin? They'll be like, what? What are you talking about? That's like a scam or no, that's way too complicated. But if 10 people do that in like a span of two months or two weeks, they might be like, hey, maybe this is something I should look into more. So you're kind of just planting seeds everywhere you go. And eventually, you know, eventually everybody's going to come on board because pretty much everyone's already on board that the US dollar and the monetary system is very broken. Like that's people have been convinced the past three years. They're, they're awake to that reality, but they're not awake to the reality that Bitcoin is a very, um, you know, sound solution for the world that we live in. And it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. So being a part of that education and being a part of that, you know, just nudging people in that direction can make a big difference. 
I, I think that I need to, you know, as a business owner, look at uh, doing exactly what you just said and just have uh, participate, right? Like, I mean, just participate. Mm-hmm. Why do you think the Bitcoin community is embracing more of this meat-based diet or even uh, carnivore? Yeah, I mean, this goes with anything, right? And to me, it's just like I told you, once I realized that I was passionate about these topics for the same reason, it's kind of like when you you just put on a pair of glasses and you look at the world through this different perspective, to me, there's no going back and it's inevitable, right? If you if you heal yourself from a health issue by going carnivore or, you know, making some radical change that's, you know, out of the norm from what, like a a traditional doctor would recommend, you're going to be skeptical about everything. Then you're like, oh, wait, they told me red meat was bad for me. They told me that I need to be consuming less saturated fat. And then I did the opposite of what they say. I'm getting sunlight. I'm eating red meat. Um, I feel better than ever. What else is wrong that they've told me? Oh, um, you know, they're the media paints this evil picture around Bitcoin, um, around so many things now, like exercise is right wing, I think was a hilarious article title at some point. Um, but in general, or, you know, things that are safe, oh, there's nothing wrong with GMO crops or the use of herbicides, or these things are perfectly safe as long as you're below this EPA exposure limit. Tap water, the New York City mayor is making campaigns around drinking tap water that contains 25 plus different carcinogens and toxins that like are you serious is this real life so there's so much of that ongoing that for me it's almost been like easier than ever to bring people over because all they need is an open mind to consider this and bitcoiners they already have that right they already have this you know large leap they made uh, in terms of the the money and the financial perspective, so telling them that seed oils are bad for them and that red meat is is good for you is a you know a pretty easy thought to uh, provoke and yeah it's kind of taken hold and guess what the truth resonates and this is something that's a foundational principle of Bitcoin and decentralization is the truth will always resonate especially today where you know it's harder to suppress things. It's easier to muddy the waters because there's so much information out there, but the truth is out there. You just need to find it. Whereas, you know, the the information was very, very curated for a long time before the age of the internet. So it's just a matter of time and you have that open-minded perspective to consider the alternative. And then guess what? You know, any really open-minded person would be like, hey, this carnivore thing or just eating more red meat or eating local real foods instead of processed foods seems to be working for a lot of people. I'm going to try it out for three months, see how I feel. Then they see it working. And then that's truth right there. That's you putting in that personal responsibility. I'm going to try this. I'm not going to form opinions and conclusions from other people. I'm going to actually just do it myself and come up with my own conclusion. And that's what I'm big on as well. I love taking opinions, taking feedback from different perspectives. But at the end of the day, you need to come up with your own opinion because that's something that can still happen very, very easily in the carnivore community, in the Bitcoin space. I mean, there's there's sheep everywhere, but you, you need to maintain that, hey, I'm trying to keep this holistic, um, just non-dogmatic view, be very objective about everything. Um, if you really want to be decentralized. But of course, if you get in a space where 
pretty much everyone has put in that work of vetting things out, it's a lot easier to kind of go along with, with inspiration from others. Absolutely. I've, I've gotten to the point to where I feel like the, you know, there's so much information out there, Tristan, that you get uh, kind of tripped up on like, what direction do you go in and what you can't, you know, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. And so for me, that one thing that I have settled on that I have control and I can do is to eat local regeneratively raised meat. I think if there's only one thing you can do, it's that. It's support those local farmers that are doing things, you know, in the, in the way that's making things better. And so that's what we've been trying to do is facilitate that through the market. How do we do a better job selling meat? How do we do a better job mm -hmm. marketing? How do we do a better job educating? And so how how have you come to the conclusion that the the regenerative makes sense and is a solution? Yeah, and it really goes back to something I think about of every topic, every decision, whether it's health, whether it's food, whether it's agriculture, what really like step back from 2023 perspective, step back from the noise of the debates and just think contextually, like what actually makes sense? You're in Arkansas. If I'm in Wyoming, like what would have naturally occurred here before humans or before industrialization? And obviously nature is naturally regenerative. It's naturally um, not taking uh, too much and it's having long rest periods and it's foundationally very biodiverse. Life is proliferating in healthy ecosystems. So all the aspects of regenerative agriculture all it's trying to do is emulate nature, whether that's via rotational grazing, whether that's multi-species cover crops, um, long rest periods, having the right breed for the right environment, you know, restoring natural native large ruminant like the bison and bringing back kind of other animal species or, or bugs or any other biodiverse organisms that are going to contribute to that. That's all regenerating the land in a way that nature would have intended. And nature, nature is the only, the really true decentralized system that exists, right? It is 100% resilient in a local manner when things are going correct. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have these boom bust periods. Like that happens for a reason. Forest fires happen for a reason because, you know, there's overgrowth and it's too dense and that's not contributing to the long-term success of that area. So naturally there would be forest fires, it would cleanse, then all these nutrients get upcycled into the soil. Like these things are all designed to occur for a reason. And it's the same thing with our biology, right? Like we are designed to thrive in a specific environment, in our local environment as well. Like our body is, is meant to be in tune with where you're standing in the world, at what time, at what season. So the best thing I think you can do is the same thing that you just said is, is eat hyper local and embrace your local environment because that's what nature would have done. That's what humans would have done for the existence majority of existence. I mean, yeah, there's some large farming going on, like starting 10,000 years ago, but humans were around for a lot longer than that. And really, um, it's all hyper local because whatever was there was what was available. And then again, you want to build resilience, like community is huge. 
and you want to build resilience in your community, in your systems that you're immersed in, because that's what you have control over. So another aspect of decentralization that kind of stems from, from a lot of Bitcoiners as well is don't trust, verify. How can you verify what's coming from the grocery store? A lot of times the farms aren't even listed. The meat could be just, you know, it could say, you know, made in the U.S. or raised in the U.S. And that could not even be true. Um, it could be repackaged or it could be from, you know, a ranch that's saying, oh, it's grass fed. But grass fed, if it's not 100% grass fed, grass finished. And then was it regenerative? Is it pasture raised? There's so much greenwashing, so much like marketing scheming going on. How can you verify? And the answer is. You really can't. I mean, some of these brands have social medias and you can get a better idea. There are good options at the grocery store, but the best option is to go in person to a local producer, verify, ask them questions, look at the soil, look at what they're growing, look at the health of the animals. That is how you can actually verify the quality of the operation. And then you're building a relationship with that person. And that to me is invaluable and you can't quantify that via any data that if you eat something from your local environment, getting that from someone that you care about and put faith in, it's going to be better for you um, overall. And, and if you see the health of the animal, we now know through some research is that a healthier animal raised in a way that's more indicative to natural um, grazing and raising styles is actually more nutrient dense for us. No coincidence. I didn't need any data to prove that, but now we do have it, right? It makes sense. It's logical sense. So that's how I think about it. And I think, yeah, it's, it's almost the number one recommendation. Eat locally, just get involved locally with your community from a food perspective, from your own health perspective, just embrace it. Hey man, I love that. Uh, we've, you know, visited with Bill Schindler and Sally Fallon Morell and that ancestral diet, the ancestral way of eating is, you know, it's massive. And then you hit on, uh, you know, some of these health experts like Jordan Rubin, uh, that really, really embrace this agricultural aspect on, on regenerative. And, you know, there's just so many resources and so many just incredible people out there that we can learn from that are actually doing it. They're not just theorizing, right? They're putting the, the proof of work. They're, they're doing it. Yep. Um, all right. I want to shift gears on almost like this second part uh, with you because uh, we've got Dr. Jack Cruz coming up, and uh, I'm not mentally ready uh, for for him. You know, he's uh, he's he's a lot. You know, he, he's he's uh, he's uh, you know uh, very excited to have him on. But I want to go into this circadian biology, this quantum biology aspect, just kind of on that uh, that basic level, and get us into understanding that that way. I can better understand the biohacking side of it, right? Like with, you know, cancer is my primary focus, but mm -hmm. it's all tied together. Yeah, well, that's exciting. He's going to be a really great conversation. He just did a podcast with RFK that I think came out today. So it's, it's great to see this kind of becoming mainstream because, again, tying back to what we've already talked about, it's really about embracing your local environment embracing the season, embracing the natural inputs from that environment that would have existed. And, and what does that mean? That means the light, 
right? Like artificial light is a relatively new phenomenon in human history that would have never existed. And especially the LEDs, the fluorescence we have now is completely different from the incandescence that existed a hundred years ago. And then that is completely different from just fire from candles and and fires. And that's all we had for, you know, the existence of, of modern society. So we've really made a drastic change in our light environment. And then we're indoors all the time. We are designed to be in the sun. The sun, I was just doing some calculations and, and there's so many cool research paper. The sun has this, it's a full spectrum of light, right? So that's why artificial light is artificial because even though it has blue light and the sun has blue light, the sun is never present without red and infrared light. So you're creating this artificial light environment when you're just indoors under fluorescence and your listeners might be familiar that, you know, things like blue light are really bad for sleep because it's um, shutting off melatonin production because after the sun sets, there is no light present in nature. It's dark. And in the winter, um, or times where northern latitudes, for example, you know, that that's earlier. So your body's going to be ramping up melatonin production. There's going to be less UV. So there's going to be a lot of seasonality, seasonal changes going on. So that's what you need to kind of tap into. And again, it comes all down to this decentralized health model where the best things for our health are free. They're accessible to everyone but they're kind of challenging to embrace in a modern lifestyle. If you go work a nine to five in an office, artificial light everywhere, you're not connected to that. You're not connected to the earth. You know, before insulative footwear became a thing, we were always grounded. We were always connected to the earth via bare feet um, or, you know, leather, animal hide, skinned footwear. So that's something that's important because that's another input and grounding has been shown to regulate circadian rhythm or your body clock as well, improve, you know, inflammatory conditions because it's providing an input of free electrons to our body as well. So people, most people get hung up on the food aspect of health, diet and exercise. Like you get these two in check and you're golden. And that was the case until we really completely changed everything in our environment outside of that. And obviously the food is completely garbage now from, you know, the average level, but there's even more to it. And that's what a lot of people kind of forget to recognize. But a lot of guys who are embracing like a carnivore, more ancestral diet, they're also getting outside in the sunlight a lot more. And they're almost not even realizing how beneficial that is. And like I was saying, I was doing some research yesterday and the amount of energy we can uh, absorb from the sun is, is, is on the magnitude of like a 100 to 1000 X of the energy we absorb from food. So really nobody's considering that, but why has nobody ever talked about that? Why is the mainstream media telling us that sun is bad, lather up in sunscreen? It's because it's, you know, really free, really accessible for anyone. And even if you just two, three, four X your sun exposure, you're going to make, you're going to have a tremendous impact positively on your health. So circadian biology in general is really just about tapping in to the natural circadian rhythms that your body is designed to thrive on. It's, it's all about timing you know, sleep, wake cycles, sleep in general is so important because that's where we are restoring. That's where we're repairing all our cells. 
So all these toxins we're exposed to now um, is even more important to have that restorative sleep. And if we have blue light at night, if we have, you know, we're just getting blasted with stimulants or, or loud noises or going to bed at 2 a.m. instead of 10 p.m. and doing having different sleep cycles, as well as, you know, I talk a lot about electromagnetic fields from technology. So if we have our phone right next to our head when we are sleeping, that's all impacting sleep quality. And then you're not getting as much restoration cell repair. So those toxins, they're going to catch up to you a lot faster than they would have, say, 50 years ago. So that's why we're seeing things like chronic disease in people younger and younger and younger. And in my opinion, that's the scariest component of it. And it's only going to get worse if we don't address it. it it's... <laughs> We're not getting better, right? And I think that's part of what's waking everybody up. But none of this that you're, you're talking about is necessarily new, right? Like Obecker has been, you know, it, that's that's not new. His, you know, body electric, the work that's out there, that that is, yep. it's there. And with the artificial world we live in, it, it just really, something that's just coming up more and more to get my attention. We've talked to uh, Thomas Seafried, and he's got the metabolic approach to cancer, and that's kind of his claim to, to fame. And with that, Tristan, what I have come to fully believe, and I, I, want, I want your input on this, is that the diseases come from a combination of toxicity and deficiency, right? And that's what destroys the mitochondrial function. Mm -hmm. And with that happening, the part that we're not looking at is what you just went through in this this circadian rhythm that we're in. But his his work uh, ended up leading me to uh, Russell Ryder. So Dr. Ryder's like the melatonin uh, expert. That's who I, I just, think. that like uh, energy thing was what I was citing was was from Ryder's paper. Was Dr. So fantastic. So he, he's incredible. And he just came, he sent me a paper where it was uh, using uh, melatonin with metastatic cancer and just getting incredible mm -hmm. results. And this is like July of this year. I think you would love that paper. But I sent that to Dr. Seafried too. And the we're really, we're trying to get a study going on melatonin and cancer. But I know that Dr. Cruz is anti-supplementing with melatonin. Do you have have any thoughts with this? And, and tell me if you disagree with the toxicity deficiency aspect that, that I believe Um is the contributor to, you know, disease. Yeah, well, what you said uh, after that, the mitochondrial dysfunction for sure, I think is the number, you know, that is the real root cause of chronic disease. And, and what contributes to that is many things, right? Yeah, it is the external toxins. Um, it is, you know, the lack of connection, the very dismal circadian biology and deficiency in nutrients or just it's the wrong input signal. So I'm an engineer. I think of everything like a system, right? The mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. Like that's known. That is biology 101. Yet they spend no money researching this. They only spend it on the nuclear genome. Why? Because they can make way more pharmaceutical solutions for that. But if you have a system, you have inputs and you have outputs. The output here is, is energy, whether that's through ATP, it's also through you know metabolic water that's produced. And you could talk about 
the water collagen communication matrix is also important. So si signaling in the cells is, is extremely important. Most people don't know that the mitochondria are also responsible for a tremendous amount of signaling going on. It's this communication hub. So you have a system that's important for communication, important for energy production, and then you're getting the wrong inputs. You're, you're having artificial light. You're having diet that's either it's garbage, it's not in season, it's devoid of nutrient. Um, you have other toxins like EMFs, you know, whatever carcinogen you want to name, glyphosate, herbicides. So your output, it's going to be compromised. And eventually that system, it's not going to have enough energy to function. And you're going to get mitochondrial dysfunction. And that might just be in one tissue area. What tissues have the most mitochondrial density? Your heart, your brain, your liver, um, reproductive organs are very, you know, energy intensive processes to produce things like sperm and eggs. It's those types of organs um, that are really getting hit with mitochondrial dysfunction. And that can take years because it's a rate. It's like, all right, if I'm 25 living a pretty terrible lifestyle, maybe 20% dysfunction. By the time you're 35, that could be 50. And then, oh, I have now these chronic diseases showing the face. So 100% aligned there. Um, but again, what does melatonin do? Most people think of melatonin as you know something that's just produced by the pineal gland. That's you know the the hormone of darkness, so we can go to sleep. Yeah, that's true. But what Dr. Russell Ryder and Scott Zimmerman have been researching that's so fantastic is that we now know that the mitochondria are using melatonin to basically dictate. Um, so many functions are kind of like the composer of the melatonin dictating autophagy, cell cleanup, uh, apoptosis, programmed cell death. If a mitochondria is dysfunctional, you know, they want to kill it. They want to clean it up, get it out of there so it's not causing issues, not causing improper output signals um, and, and mitochondrial fusion and fission, all these other things going on. And what's stimulating mitochondria to produce melatonin? Near infrared light. Near infrared light is coming from the sun. 50% of the sun is infrared. That would have been our natural input signal and that's helping us restore and repair all the damage throughout the day. And of course, that's ongoing as well in other areas of our body. So I agree 100% that melatonin is so under-discussed, undervalued, and that's why I love what those guys are doing. But then, yeah, because of all that, it's been proven to be anti-cancer that I'm sure you know very well. So then everyone in the biohacking space is kind of like, well, let's just supplement with 100 milligrams of melatonin. And that's, you know, an easy way to do it. And there's a lot of problems with that, in fact, because A, synthetic melatonin is not equivalent to the melatonin that we produce in our body. The pineal glands only producing like 300, 100 to 300 micrograms of melatonin per night. That is nothing. That's a third to a tenth of a milligram. And a lot of these, yeah, dosages are, are five to 10. Now, Ben Greenfield's doing like 50 milligram suppositories or whatever. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy. So that's a problem. They have other ingredients that aren't listed on the labels. The, the regulation around supplements is, is abysmal at best. And that's why, you know, hormonal or sorry, melatonin supplementation in most of the rest of the world, in the EU, I think here in Australia, it's actually not allowed. Like you can't buy melatonin over the counter because they know how powerful it is. So that's an issue. Um, actually, someone just sent me a, a direct message the other day that they came up with this phyto melatonin that's a lot better quality. 
um, I'll have to send you their contact information and the paper they wrote, which was really good. Um, but they, they agreed and I asked them, I said, hey, I'm not actually a fan of melatonin supplementation unless I'm traveling like drastic time zones. And even then I might just take a nibble of like half a milligram, like a tiny bit to just help transition. Um, but I, I want to focus and why I don't like supplements at a high level is because they're a band-aid approach. They're a short-term solution to improving your condition. They're not fundamentally changing the foundational issues, which is rooted in your circadian biology, in your connection to your local environment, which is really causing the mitochondrial dysfunction and mitigating the toxins that come with living in that environment. So yeah, um, but again, if you have cancer, that's an extreme situation that you're in, right? So that could definitely warrant taking melatonin as a medicine, right, at that point. Um, but again, the, the form of it, the dosing, uh, the quality would be really important to control. So, and I think Jack has said that as well. He's like, if you're going to take melatonin, very short periods of time, he would, I think in the beginning, he would say like, never take it for more than a few weeks. But for me, it's like, as a healthy 27 year old, I almost would never take it for more than just like a very one off occasion. And even then I'm, I've been pretty much not taking it at all because if you're using it to fall asleep, you're not addressing the issue of your sleep. Why, why are you not falling asleep? Do you have hormonal issues stimulated to just a lack of, you know, connection to your environment, your circadian biology, you're on screens all night. Um, you're drinking way too much caffeine. It could be a million reasons you're not addressing the root cause. So yeah, that's kind of my thoughts, but man, it's so exciting. The melatonin relationship and how it's seasonal, as I mentioned, seasonality, Wyoming, winter, it's dark, it's cold. You're going to be producing more melatonin. Summer, high UV, actually, you're going to be producing more vitamin D. And that paper I'll send you is kind of talking about the vitamin D melatonin relationship, hormone of light, hormone of dark, and they actually bind, the melatonin can bind to vitamin D receptors, which is kind of a new uh, uncovering. That's just so exciting. But, you know, 200 years ago, you didn't have to tell people to do that. You know, they just, they went to sleep after the sunrise, maybe had some candles around. They woke up at this uh, or sunset. They woke up at sunrise because that's when they had to put in the work. That's when the light was available. Now it's all a mess. So we need to be yeah. deliberate about changing it. Absolutely. No, I, I love that answer. I think that for anybody with cancer, it's a honestly a no brainer. It's something they should absolutely be looking into uh, and, and considering. But I think it's that toxic world. It's I think I think the Band-Aid, you're spot on, but it is also something that I think helps uh, get us through. I, I do think that it, you know, it's a tool. So um, John Laurent, I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with Dr. Laurent. Um, he would be a great guest for you uh, on the podcast too, I think. But uh, he's huge on melatonin, right? And I think he's yeah, the one that yeah. got Benfield, uh, yep, yep. Uh, Greenfield, <laughs> Ben Greenfield doing it too. But another one that he has been big on is Methylene Blue. And I know that you're familiar with Methylene Blue. And uh, so had a friend come uh, by, by the market not too long ago with a concussion, and she was really, really struggling. And I actually gave her Methylene Blue and sent her your podcast where y'all broke down uh, the concussion protocol with it. And she texted me the other day and said it saved her life. So I think that that's worth us discussing a little bit. What is methylene blue? What are, is it used for? And why is it having that big of an impact? 
Yeah, um, that's so funny too because my girlfriend's sister here yesterday had a she had a little concussion. I was like, yeah, you should give her some methylene blue after a couple of days, and we're she's on the same page as me as well too. So, I wish I had methylene blue when I had my concussions five years ago. Actually, that would have been nice. But yeah, what is it? Oh, it's such a fascinating compound, right? And it's one of those few compounds. You know, it is of synthetic origin. It's actually the first synthetic uh, medicinal compound that was ever used. Um, to treat uh, malaria. So it was invented as like a chemical dye by the textile industry in the 1870s and 15 years later. Or so they were testing all of these dyes, all these compounds um, for use against uh, parasitic infections like malaria. Um, so it was discovered that it was really beneficial in, in treating malaria and it's been used to treat malaria uh, for the past 140 years now or 30 years. So it's one of the most studied compounds. It's one of the most efficacious. Uh, it's on the WHO's list of essential medicines. And that's because it's one of the only known treatments for carbon monoxide, arsenic poisoning, which induces met hemoglobinemia, which is changing the state of iron um, to not be able to effectively carry oxygen um, to the final um, position in the electron transport chain in the mitochondria um, and that's something that methylene blue is really effective at is um, improving mitochondrial dysfunction because most people understand that antioxidants are good for your health. And that's a huge debate in and of itself, whether they're actually functional from the Petri dish to in real life. But methylene blue is very, very effective as an antioxidant. And what an antioxidant is, is it's just donating electrons to free radicals produced from an inefficient mitochondrial process. So um, molecules like oxygen don't like to have unpaired electrons. So they're going to go and try and steal it from somewhere else. And where they're going to steal it from is usually um, upwards in the electron transport chain earlier on from these respiratory proteins. And then that's going to cause, you know, more inefficiencies and then more damaging um, free radicals to be produced um, if they are not quenched by either natural antioxidants. So melatonin, one of those. Melatonin actually probably the best antioxidant because it has this cascading effect where melatonin will donate an electron and then that molecule that's produced from melatonin losing electron can donate an electron and then the third form can donate an electron and then the fourth form can also donate an electron so it's like 4x molecules of you know antioxidants fantastic so methylene blue does the same thing but what's cool about methylene blue is it can actually act as an electron donor or acceptor so it can shuttle electrons around the mitochondria, around the cell where it's needed most. So it's just fantastic at improving mitochondrial dysfunction. It's fantastic um, in those kind of hypoxic environments or when you have some toxicity. And what people don't understand is when you sustain uh, injury, like a TBI or a concussion, like the mitochondria are, are gonna be compromised because there was some damage there and energy you know, is the most important thing. Having functioning mitochondria is so important for healing. So that's why methylene blue is a fantastic intervention. And there is strong research. Most of this um, coming from Dr. Gonzalez Lima, um, I believe at UT Austin or Texas A&M, I don't remember, but fantastic research on methylene blue for brain health, brain injuries. And also he pairs it with 
photobiomodulation, which is near infrared light. So that's also near infrared light is also fantastic for mitochondrial health. Um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, the importance of, of getting sunlight. So that's why then you see methylene blue. Oh, it's anti-parasitic. It's anti-malaria. It's anti-COVID. It's anti-inflammatory. It's all these things. It's because how it acts in our mitochondria and it's a strong electron donor and acceptor. So it's continuously oxidizing and reducing molecules as needed. However, there is some debate whether it's very efficacious if you don't need it. Um, if your mitochondrial cells are, are functioning just fine, then it might be doing more harm than good. And I had this whole rebuttal on my, my podcast, my YouTube channel on this. And my thought is that almost nobody has like perfect mitochondria. But again, it's a supplement. Do I take it every day? No, I don't. It also has, you know, other side effects such as causing some, a small amount of serotonin buildup. So if you're on SSRIs, you should definitely not take it or be very skeptical about it. Um, but compared to traditional medical interventions, we're talking antidepressants, we're talking, you know, amphetamines or, or any other, you know, painkillers, anything. Methylene blue is a million times better option, but why does the centralized system never talk about it? Because it's been around for 150 years, they can't patent it in its original form, so they can't make money off of it, and it's really cheap. You know, my buddy Vance started Meraki Medicinal, and yeah, he sent me like a couple bottles, and I like I'm, it's gonna last me like five years because I only take it when I'm traveling or when I have some you know inflammatory state. Maybe when I'm hiking hypoxic environments at like twelve thousand feet, it's good for recovery from that or or in the moment. So yeah, it's it's a great tool to have. I think everyone should get educated on it, and I think everyone should have some at hand for you know moments like a concussion or or moments of travel or if you're not sleeping like at all. It can be it can be very helpful at mitigating the oxidative stress that's uh, produced from those type of situations. Love it. I'm I'm a big big fan of of methylene blue, and I, I agree with you. I know that what was it? Chris Master John came out with a yeah, big yeah. Uh, negative thing lately on on that. But uh, no, I think that uh, very few, if anybody, have perfect mitochondria, and so it's uh, probably going to benefit way more people than not. Uh, Tristan, man, thank you, thank you for the time. Uh, appreciate all your knowledge and sharing, and it's it is. Man, it is a relief to know there are this many of us in this community fighting, uh, bringing it together, trying to just make a, a positive change. And so where can uh, we send everybody to find out more about uh, you and your work and uh, what uh, what's next? Yeah. So, well, I guess, you know, I've kind of been uh, focusing on just health consulting. So on the health optimization side of things, after going through my self-healing journey for four years. It's, it's really empowering to share that with folks now who, who need to heal or are trying to get an optimal state of health. So shortcutting to what information matters and what actually works, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of so many clients that come to me, they're like, oh, this guy put me on 20 supplements and like this routine and it didn't really work. And that's why I'm big on this. We talked about some supplements. 
they're fantastic interventions, but everything I talked about before that, you know, the lifestyle habits, that's going to make the foundational change. So what I do is, you know, if I, if I say recommend methylene blue, it's, it's to bridge that gap, to get a kickstart in your healing journey. But you shouldn't have to take methylene blue for the rest of your life unless you actually have a severe medical condition from birth, perhaps. And that's what it's all about. It's building resilience and then empowering through education, right? Uh, so I, you know, there's so much wrong with the current healthcare system. They're, they're just telling you what to do. They're not actually educating you. So how are you going to be knowledgeable enough to sustain an optimal state of health for the rest of your life? So that's what I focus on. And then because I have an electrical engineering background, really focusing in on, on EMFs. So I'm building a course right now and talk a lot about that on my Twitter, which is at uh, Bitcoin and underscore beef. So that's where I'm most active, um, but also on Instagram uh, at Tristan underscore health. My website is, is TristanHealth.com, where I have my story, kind of um, my background and what I preach, which you got a taste of here and have a newsletter you can sign up for to stay up to date. And then, as you mentioned, our decentralized radio podcast is, is everywhere and talking a lot about similar things, Bitcoin, health optimization, uh, homesteading. I want to get some hunting folks on there, really anything decentralized. Well, we'll have to get you on there, Logan, actually. That'd be fantastic to, to hear your story, your journey into this, because that's what it's all about. And it's so grateful. I'm so grateful to connect with with more like-minded individuals where the momentum's only building. We're, we're going to win and I'm really psyched about it. It's a great time to be alive and spread this message. Amen, buddy. I, I love it. Love it so much. Uh, definitely check it out. It's a great podcast. I, I'm up to date. I've listened to, to all of it. Keep, uh, keep putting in the work and uh, we will visit soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on Sewing Prosperity. Be sure to follow along across the social media platforms, including YouTube, and be sure to go to sewingprosperity.com.